We're in the eighth chapter, and uh, we're just kind of making our way through a study in the book of Daniel. There's an incredible difference in the level of interest in biblical prophecy and biblical history. I can promise you that. For example, if I made an announcement, and we got it in the, in, in the media, got it publicized, that I was going to bring a sermon on when America would fall, and I had some scriptural proof of when that would happen, and who was going to be the conquering nation, we'd have ten times more people come out and hear that than if I were to announce a sermon on what God said to Hezekiah, you know, for example. There's a great deal of difference in an interest in biblical prophecy and biblical history. Somebody was telling about a, a preacher who is really one of the top five men in the nation with regard to biblical prophecy. And he was going, he had been invited to preach in this church, uh, kind of a small church really. And they asked him to speak on biblical prophecy. And so he was going to be there five days and he was going to preach five times on biblical prophecy. Well, he decided that in the middle of that week, he would do a sermon, one sermon on the loveliness of Christ and talk about the historical reasons for the death of Jesus or the historical reasons that were involved in Jesus' crucifixion. And he said that in every one of the services where he was preaching on biblical prophecy, had standing room only crowds, and the night he spoke on, on the third night when he spoke on the loveliness of Christ, it was half full. Well, the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel to us is biblical history. I mean, it's just a historical record. But it wasn't history to Daniel. As a matter of fact, it was all prophecy to him. I mean, it was something yet to be, yet to happen. And that explains why he, would, why he wrote verse 27. Look at that, it says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for six days. Now I ask our resident theologian, Mark Wright, what do you think, what, what, is, what do you think was wrong with him? He said, well, I guess he had the flu. Never ask him again, you know. Anything about, but when he got through with this uh, vision, he was spent, he was drained, sick, he said, and uh, for six days. In fact, he said, what I saw in this vision was literally incredible. Now, I read verses 1 through 26, and I didn't think, see anything so incredible myself. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that when Daniel got this message, everything was out before him, and he got a message like you and I would receive if God suddenly came to us and said, I'm going to tell you how America's going to fall. And when he got through with this, the incredible things he saw, he was sick and exhausted from that. Um, I need you to remember tonight that what he saw in this vision and what God gave him in this revelation 
was going to take place in about the second or third centuries. And he's B.C., century 3 and 2 B.C. And he's way back in century 7 B.C. And so this is all something is yet to happen for him, even though it, for us it's just history, it's already happened. So what I want to do, and what, I've been, what I'm about here now, is to try to get you to put yourself in Daniel's shoes so you can look ahead 700 years. Imagine yourself living 600 B.C. Well, let's look at the outline. There, let's, let's see the vision. The time of the vision. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, the king, a vision appeared to me. Now last week we talked about another vision, the first vision that came to Daniel. And it took place what reign, what year of Belshazzar's reign? Well, the first, this is the third so there is a two-year gap between vision one and vision two. Two years take place. And where did it happen? Where was he? He says in verse two that he was in the citadel, in the capital of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And he said, I myself was standing beside Uliah Canal. Uliah Canal. Now, what on the, where in the world is that? Well, it just happens to be he was standing, he was in the capital of the world. He was in the capital city of the most powerful nation in the world, and he was standing by a little river, a little brook that flowed through the capital of the world. It would be like saying, I received this revelation from God while I was standing by the Potomac in Washington, D.C., and I was overlooking Capitol Hill and the White House, and what he saw blew his mind. Now, verse 3, the significance. There are two animals here. Look at verse 3. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns was, were, were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. Now this first vision first animal was a ram with two horns coming from the east and was pushing in the other directions at will. It's the picture of destructive force. This is a powerful nation. All right, look at verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground in air, this goat. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. It was like a unicorn. Know what they're called? With one horn sticking out the, from the head. And he's not touching the ground, indicative of the fact that he was flying with great speed. This um, beast with one horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram, 
well, follow carefully, that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. So you have this clash between this goat with one horn and this ram with two horns. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. He is mighty and powerful. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. He, 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 he presents himself in, in, exalt, in exaltation. He magnifies himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now I need to pause and remind you that number four in apocalyptic literature is, the, is a, the number that symbolizes the world. And anytime you read about four winds and, uh, you know, of heaven or four corners of the earth, he's talking about the entire world scene. And you know that he's saying that this is the world as they knew the world in that day. So that these... Four horns came and, and affected the whole earth so that now the four horns are in control of the world as they knew the world in that time. I right, look at verse 9. And out of one of them, that is out of one of these horns that came after the, the big guy, you know, the big horn, <laughs> the unicorn was broken. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly toward the south, which is Egypt, toward the east, which is Persia, and toward the beautiful land. It's a reference to Palestine. So that this, out of one of these horns, there came another horn, a small horn, and... and um, it says toward, it means that it affected or it moved against the south and the east and Palestine. Now look what happens to it. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and trample them down. Now when you read apocalyptic literature, you need to understand that it, it uses symbols and images and weird visions. What he's talking about here when he talks about the host of heaven and stars, he's talking about those of God, the stars of God, the saints of God. You remember when God said to Abraham, He said, take a look in the heavens and you count the stars if you can. That's how my, one, uh, that's how plenteous and, and majestic I'm going to make of you a nation. Well, it's no surprise that he refers, could we say, to the Jews, to the sons of Abraham here as stars. Now out of this, out of this 
horn, this one of the four horns, there arises a horn that turns against the Jew, tramples them down, um, goes against them in force. You with me to this point? He even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Now, who is the commander of the host? The commander of the host of heaven, the, the, the um, what do they call it, president, commander-in-chief? Who is the commander-in-chief of the host of heaven? Well, it's Almighty God. Now, watch this. He even magnified itself, himself, to be equal with God, and remove the regular sacrifice from him. Now what he's talking about here is, this, this, this person, this nation, or whatever he is, we'll see that in a minute, exalts himself to be equal with God, and he changes the sacrificial system that had been uh, a part of Jewish life for histories. And, and it says, and it will fling it to the ground, Wait a minute. At verse 11, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. He's talking about the temple. See. The place of his sanctuary, the temple. Are you with me at this point? This is a yes. This is a no. Some of you are. Some of you are neutral. Some of you are not. All right. Now, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, he, he overhears conversation of these angels. How long is this going to be that the sacrificial system is going to you know, be um, affected and the temple Practice is going to be destroyed. How long is that going to be? He says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, why does he use that term? Well, he's talking about the sacrificial system. And, and the way they brought sacrifices in those days was they brought a sacrifice in the morning and brought one in the evening. He's talking about literally uh, half of 2,300, which would be what? You tell me. Half of 2,300 is what? How many? Good, thank you. 1,150? Close. All right, now, real close. <laughs> and it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me. Now, he didn't, know, he didn't understand it any more than we do to this point. You understand? You see what I'm saying? I mean, he is as confused as you are confused. Don't, you know, don't fret. <laughs> he said, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. An angel looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man behind the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, only four times is Gabriel referred to in Scripture, twice in the book of Daniel and twice in the book of Luke. Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Somebody's going to help us understand what's going on here. So he came near to where I was standing 
And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now I want you to jot down something beside this in the margin. This little statement, double fulfillment. Double fulfillment. What we have now in, in, in biblical prophecy is what is called the law of double fulfillment. And the law of double, double fulfillment is this, that you have something in the text that pertains to a historical person contemporary. A person who lives in the immediate present or in the contemporary, and yet someone in the distant future, future resembles that person, see. So what you have is someone who is going to come in the immediate future that resembles somebody who's coming in the distant future. Now those who believe that Daniel is a book on biblical prophecy, of yet of which is, you know, so much is yet to be fulfilled, or will come to this passage, come to this verse, and say that what we're going to see now is a person coming upon the scene that resembles someone who is going to be on the scene at the end of the age. All right, you're here with me to this point, okay? I hope. Look at this. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, the final period of time. For it, it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now, that's where the the biblical prophecies to get um, the double fulfillment. I'm going to show you something that's going to pertain to something that's yet to happen and that will happen at the end of the age, the end of time. And he just tells us what the vision's about. Now look here. Get, get with me now. He said, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. All right, so we got that. That ram with two horns, Medes and Persians. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes, the first king. Now who was the king of Greece? Alexander the Great. Okay, we've already seen that twice in, in the passages prior to this one tonight. Alexander the Great. Now you say, well, so what? Well, what if you'd have been Alexander the Great and somebody showed you this? As a matter of fact, there is a record in ancient history that a teacher one day took the Scripture and showed Alexander the Great that he was in the Bible before he ever came to be. And the story goes that Alexander the Great stood stunned for moments so that so here's what happens to Alexander the Great. He says, and the broken horns, that's a reference to the death of Alexander the Great. 
All right? So you got this Alexander, the king of Greece, and he's going to die. And when he died, historical fact, his kingdom was divided up to four generals, top-ranking officials, became the leaders, in essence, the supervisors, the kings of his kingdom, four of them. Let me just say a word about Alexander the Great. You know, I know you're interested in a little history. Alexander the Great was the son of Philip of Macedon. His, wife, his mother's name was Olympus. Let me tell you what she, she uh, built into the life of her young son. She taught him that Achilles was an ancestor, this uh, figure out of Greek mythology, and that his father was a descendant of Hercules. Now, if you've got a mother teaching you that your father was a descendant of Hercules and you come on the scene, you're going to be pretty Herculean. <laughs> I have a feeling. As a matter of fact, the story, history, or, or at least legend has it, that, that, that uh, Alexander rode a horse that nobody could ever ride. He tamed this white stallion and rode it. Philip of Macedon, his father, said to him one day, Seek out a kingdom, Alexander, worthy of yourself, for Macedon is too small for you. You talk about motivation. So before he was 30, he was bored. He'd conquered the worlds. He turned to drink. He got malaria when he was 33 and died. And when he died... His kingdom was divided to four generals. But this man was responsible for uniform currency. He was responsible for a uniform language, Koine Greek. Koine Greek is the Greek spoken, the, the spoken Greek. And, and, and as a matter of fact, it laid the groundwork for the coming of Jesus Christ because there was a common language, Koine Greek. He infected the world with the Hellenistic culture. It has never gotten over it. And when he died, four generals took command. One was named Cassander. He was given Europe. Wouldn't you love that? Your dad dies so you can have Europe. Okay, I'll, I'll take Europe. Cassander got Europe. Look on the back, by the way. There it is. Lysimus. Lysimus was given Turkey and Asia Minor. I mean, this guy owned the world. Can you believe this? 30-year-old, 33-year-old guy, he says, when I die, give Lysimus Turkey and Asia Minor. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I can see you're thrilled with it. <laughs> there was Seleucus, and Seleucus was, giving, was given Asia and East and the Seleucian Empire, a dynasty, is an is a, is a, uh, important dynasty in the world. We'll look at it in just a moment. And then Ptolemy was given North Africa. Now, now, now watch this carefully. Out of the Seleucian dynasty, which lived right up through the interbiblical period, and there was a, about a 500-year period between the Old and New Testament, in the interbiblical period, the Seleucian dynasty even existed during that time. But out of the Seleucian dynasty, now watch this, out of one of these horns, there arises a little horn that exalts himself 
to an equality with God, changes the Jewish ceremonial system, tears up the temple, and this man was seen hundreds of years before he arrived on the scene, in the picture. His name out of the Seleucian dynasty was Antiochus Epiphanes. That's right here on the back. Antiochus IV, the fourth, called Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, this guy was so anti-Semitic, the Jews have never experienced such anti-Semitism as this character had. He hated Jews. He came into the temple in Jerusalem. Now, watch this. And he brought a sow with him. Now, if you're a Jew, you know, pigs are taboo. He brought a sow into the temple. And he slew this sow in the temple and took the blood of the sow and spread it all over the walls of the temple. And he went over to the holiest place, the holy of holies, where God dwelled. And he tore back the curtain and he threw the blood into the holiest of holies. And he set himself up as God. Historical fact. And he brought prostitutes into the temple and had prostitutes in the holy place of God, in the sanctuary. He forbade. Did you, do, you, do you remember what it said? That he would change the Jewish system? He forbade circumcision. A woman, a woman, two women had their sons circumcised. He took those two sons, killed them, hung them around their mother's neck, took her out, the two women out to a high place and cast them off. I've got a book in my office. It's actually it's the New English Bible and the Apocryphal. In the Apocryphal books, there is a book called Second Maccabees. You need to read this sometime. It's in the Catholic Bible, as a matter of fact. Second Maccabees is apocalyptic literature. It tells about a mother with seven sons, and she defied Antiochus. So he cut out their tongues. And one by one, you think Hussein is cruel. One by one, he brought these seven sons in front of their mother and fried them on an iron hot plate, one at a time. Now, what God is saying to Daniel is, there's coming one out of these four kings that's going to be this, this terrible. And he's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And by the way, he, he uh, carried on this mess for about three years. Not quite three years. Go back and figure it up on those number of days if you want to. And it took place in the year 175. He, he, he lived from 175 to 163 B.C. And when Daniel's getting this prophecy, it was in the 7th century. Is this amazing or what? I love it. Now, if you are, you know, not inclined to biblical prophecy, you're going to stop here and say, well, what Daniel was referring to was what has already taken place in the abomination of desolation. You've heard that term, I guess. That they, what he was talking about is what Antiochus did when he went into the temple of God. If you believe in biblical prophecy, 
you believe that what he was like is what the Antichrist will be like if you believe in biblical prophecy. Now there seems to be some things that were not fulfilled in Antiochus and they are in these latter verses. Look at it. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. It seems to indicate there is yet one to come. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, now Antiochus was definitely not shrewd. I mean, he was as crude and as brutal as a freight, freight train. My, used, my mother used to say, somebody told her one time, you got about as much tack as a freight train. Well, has about as much shrewdness as, as Antiochus had. He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He was not a deceitful man. Up front, he was. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. And they were not at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. Antiochus was broken with human agency. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, what should be our response? How should we regard this? Let me give you three things and we're out of here. Now, somebody will raise this question. You know, i got um, folks are watching on TV and I got this call this week and they... He was call, asking me about my last Sunday night sermon and all, and all that. And uh, somebody's going to raise this question. You know, my question is, do you believe, let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus could return tonight? Could He return tonight? Well, if He could return tonight, you have a problem then with another Antiochus Epiphanes coming. Because He's not here. So I'm saying, there's where the problem is. I'll let you think about that a while. How should we respond to this? Number one, it gives us confidence in the written word. Let me tell you, when God's word says it, it's, it's true. It gives us confidence in the written word. Now this, this stuff happened to such a uh, degree of accuracy that Daniel has a late date. I mean, when you go to the seminary, you get in certain seminary classes, they're going to they're gonna deal with Daniel with a late date. In other words, they're going to say Daniel was written a lot later than what we think it was written because they're saying Daniel looked back on it already fulfilled and then he wrote it. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, it was so accurate, folks have said, well, it couldn't have been, you know, it couldn't have been that he lived in seventh century because it just happened to the letter of how it said it's going to happen. So Daniel gets a late date with a biblical criticist. All right, number two. It seems to me that if God can work out all these details, He can work out every detail of your life. That makes sense. 
if God can work out all these details and we have all this material before it happened, five or six hundred years before it happened, I mean, there's nothing God. God knows everything. And He knows what's going to happen in your life 200, 400, 10,000 years before it ever happens. He's not surprised when something happens to you. All right, number three. You read this and you might, get a, you might have a little fear. You have no reason to fear. You, the captain of the host is your God. I just want to finish just by reading this narrative. You don't even have to turn. You can see that I'm reading out of the Bible or I've memorized something. One. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no man can shut because you have a little power. Kept my word and have not denied my name. You know what God's saying? I'm in control of doors opening and shutting. And you have my word on it because you've trusted in me. Let's pray. Our Father, whatever happens in the future, we know that it's going to be because of your plan. And we're grateful to have a God who controls both the plan and the future. We trust you, Father. We're excited about the fact that the Bible shows us how that men and women in the past have been able to see the revelation of God. And we know that you give us a revelation of your will to faith. We trust you tonight with all that we are and all that we have. In Jesus' name. Is there a need tonight for one to come and give their heart to Christ? You need to get on the winning side. Maybe you need to come tonight and join the church or to rededicate yourself to the Lord. We invite you to come. It's a good time to do it. While we stand to sing, we invite you.